Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. After this, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine, so they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. It's like got the glory cloud up here. This is so exciting. I'm so excited. All right, so friends, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Father Patrick Schultz. I'm not a priest of Columbus. I'm a priest from Cleveland. And uh, I'm just so honored to be here with David and Michaela today. What a long journey. It's finally here. It's so exciting. Michaela, you look radiant. David, you look pretty good. All right, but Michaela, you look stunning. Okay, so... Um, I've had the privilege of journeying with a lot of couples like, you know, Damascus missionary couples. I was here last two Junes ago for AJ and Vic's wedding, and that was awesome. It just, it's so fun to work with and walk with, oh, you Damascus people, you're incredible people, right? Just because you're just running for the Lord so hard, and it's so, you just make marriage prep so easy. It was just such a gift. It was such a gift to walk this road with you guys. So, but part of, part of the reason why it was such a, I, not, I mean, part of the reason why it was so awesome and such a gift is because before you guys ever got to me, you were being so well-formed by your family and your parents in particular. So where's Michaela's mom and dad? Where are you? Okay, and David's parents right there. Okay, I just want to say, before I say anything else to them, because, like, yeah, the whole day's about them, but just but to you four, uh, awesome job. Like, your kids are amazing, and I just was so honored to, to, to be the priest who, who walked with them. Um, She's an amazing daughter, you know that. He's an amazing son, you know that. And it's just been so awesome seeing how, like, long before they ever got to Damascus or St. Paul's Outreach or before they got to me and my parish down in Wadsworth, the, uh, like, just the formation they were getting from you guys, the witness of your vows and your married love set them up for this day. So, like, awesome job. And I, I just, the church is so grateful for what you've done by raising people who are hungry to be saints and uh, raise saints for the world, Right. Yeah? Awesome. Okay, so, all right, so here's the deal. So I'm a very firm believer in pointing out the obvious, right? So uh, was anybody else a little bit, like, 
jarred by the gospel we just heard? Anybody? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Like, all right, like, yeah, like, what are we doing hearing Jesus dying at a wedding? Like, we're supposed to hear happy gospels, aren't we? We're supposed to hear, like, Jesus' wedding feast to Canaan making tons of booze. That's one of my favorites. Uh, or, like, one of Jesus' high priestly prayers from John's gospel. Like, aren't we supposed to be hearing all these happy gospels at weddings, right? Okay, so no, there's actually, well, yeah, that's fine, but there's a real beautiful reason, there's a real beautiful reason why I think this, the, the passion narrative, the death of our Lord, is such a powerful, powerful gospel for us to contemplate today on the day of your wedding. So one of the first reasons is this, that in my, in my few short years of priesthood, I was ordained in 2016, so I've been a priest for about five years now, in my few short years of priesthood, one of the things that I've really learned and discovered is that like, funerals are way more about life, and weddings are actually way more about death. It's usually where, like, the married couples in the congregation are like, amen, Father, right? <laughs> but it's true. Like, you've, you've come here to die. You've come here to lay down what was past to, like, rise to something that's totally new. Um, and, yeah, like, this is, this is a lot more about entering into what the Lord did. The other reason why we heard that gospel is because I picked it. Okay, so... Um, they honored me by letting me choose the gospel for their wedding, which is really cool. So part of the reason why I chose it was because uh, you two as a couple, you two as a couple, you are so honed in on and like laser focused on like the beauty and the goal of marriage. Like that was one of the things that as I reflected on our time of marriage prep, you guys just so like zeroed in on the, the yeah, the absolute essential truth. You just went to the depths with it. And I just wanted a gospel to be able to, like, I wanted to be able to preach on, you know, something that just reveals the absolute ultimate foundation of marriage, which is Christ's Paschal mystery, his suffering, death, and resurrection. But in particular, Good Friday, right? Good Friday is the ultimate expression of his spousal love. It's the ultimate expression of Christ's heart. Pope Benedict described that moment, Good Friday, the day that we have the audacity to call Good Friday, the day where the mad eros, the madness of God's love is revealed. The depth of his mad love, right? This is the interpretive key for understanding your guy's heart's desire. And even more importantly, like what you are saying yes to today, that is revealed by this. If we ignore the passion of our Lord, we're ignoring the very interpretive key for what you're saying yes to. You're saying yes to that. You're saying yes to that. You're saying yes to the passion, right? And it's also like, it's a reminder for everyone here who has already said yes in the vocation of marriage, what you said yes to. I think it's very easy for us in our culture to lose sight of the goal of marriage, right? The goal of Christian marriage, the goal of sacramental marriage is to make present his marriage, to make present his vows, to mount the cross in fidelity and lifelong love, right? Like, that's the goal, and maybe, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're here, you know, this afternoon for this wedding and part of your, like, your own marriage is kind of, maybe you're struggling immensely in your marriage. Like, you've gotten off the rails and maybe you don't even remember why you got married in the first place. This is why you got married, to make present his love. There's been many a groom throughout human history who has compared the day of his wedding to his funeral, Right? There's been a lot of grooms who've thought, oh, here we, like, this is the last day of my life. Here comes the old ball and chain. Right? Like, there's been a lot of grooms who've compared their weddings to their funerals. There's only been one groom in human history who compared his funeral to his wedding, and that's our Lord. Jesus is the only one who looked upon the day of his death and said, that is going to be the day in which I, the bridegroom, am taken away. It's the day of my espousal. Like, he compared his funeral to his wedding. 
And the thing is, when we have eyes to see and ears to hear Christ's passion, what we just so you know, blithely enter into when we just make the sign of the cross, it is, a, it is the wedding of which every other wedding is but an icon. His wedding is the wedding. His time on Golgotha is what the rest of your life is entering into, this self-giving love. In other words, what he's doing up there, what he's allowing to have happen to him up there, like, to understand that is it's, we have to look to what is happening in between you two. Like St. Paul says, right, this is a great mystery, a man leaving his father and mother and be joining to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. That's a great mystery. This horizontal reality, what's happening between David and Michaela, this is a great mystery, Paul says, but its ultimate reference point, what it actually is revealing, what it points to, is Christ and the church. And, and the reverse is the opposite, too. That if you want to understand what he's doing on the cross, look at a bride and groom on the day of their wedding, them pouring themselves out, them pouring themselves out. See, Jesus wasn't just simply, he just wasn't simply like a Messiah like we so often think. He wasn't just simply the liberator of Judaism like so many in his time were expecting him to be. He was, he was the anointed one. He was the bridegroom God in the flesh. He was the Mashiach of Israel incarnate. To grasp what that means like fully, we have to know who like God was to the people of Israel. Like that whole Old Testament that we as Christians, as modern-day Christians, we just like, we get lost in the names and the places, right? The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Gigabites, Mosquito Bites, all the Bites, right? Like, I don't know who those people are. We just kind of move on, right? Like, let's just get to the, like, New Testament part, right? That whole section of the story, the foundation, if we don't know that, we don't know what Jesus is coming to do. Right? The Israelites, they had this deep, profound understanding that Yahweh wasn't just simply the distant God of the philosophers, but nor was he simply the creator God who like, breathed in the beginning of Genesis and then stood back. He was a God of intimate communion. He was a God of deep, intimate communion who revealed himself, who unveiled himself, who disclosed himself to a particular people. He was relational and personal. He was intimately involved in the fate of humanity, and he took interest in a particular like, pocket of this race of men called Israel, and he entered into covenantal relationship with them, right? A bonded relationship that he was deeply interested, that the prophets of Israel, when they looked back on who God was for them, they saw that he wasn't just simply creator, redeemer, he was Bridegroom, which meant that all of their uh, infidelity, all of their idolatry was amounted to all this infidelity, to spiritual adultery. Like we see God's purposes right there on the first pages of Genesis that we just heard, that God intended to be in this relationship with humanity of deep, like intimate communion. That like he made man and woman as the ultimate icon, not only of like the Trinity's life, right? Like I'm going to make an image of myself in creation, male and female, whose bodies and souls speak to life-giving communion, that when the two become one, they become so much one. But nine months later, you often have to give that a name, right? So like the three-in-oneness of the marital union was also pointing to the kind of intimacy that God wanted with humanity, right? So you see that right in the beginning, God made our first parents to be a sign of the kind of relationship he longed to have with us, right? Humanity was meant to stand in the posture of the bride, the posture of receptivity, the posture of like being open to the radical generosity of the gift, if I could put it that way, that we were meant to be the ones 
who radically stood open before the goodness of the gift, the beneficiaries, the receivers. That was our mission. But that relationship, that relationship between heaven and earth, between God and mankind, was ruptured. It was attacked from the very beginning by the enemy of our human nature, who out of envy of us went to war against us. And he wanted humanity, instead of being in this posture of openness, this bridal receptivity, openness before God, the enemy wanted to shut us down to be closed before the gift, to not be an open, willing, trusting bride before the goodness of God. So what happened was he seduced our first parents, right? We know how that story goes, Genesis 3. He seduced our first parents by getting them to doubt, and that doubt gave birth to fear, and that fear gave birth to lack of trust. And so they grasped at godliness, and that ruptured the relationship. You see, like, ever since the fall, ever since original sin in Genesis 3, humanity and divinity, there's been, like, this great divorce. There was this great divorce between them, this gulf, this chasm, that we were never supposed to be alienated from the Lord. Our hearts know it. As John Paul II says, the heritage of our beginning is deeper than the heritage of sin in our hearts. Because, look, like, God's deepest desire on every page of the Scripture, God's deepest desire on every page of the scriptures, from beginning to end, is to unite himself to us. Like, I don't know what God you grew up knowing, what image you have of him, or what he wants of us. Like, I think so many people grow up with this, like, Olympic judge kind of God, that he's up there like the French judge with a scoreboard, docking us, like, ha ha, that is a deduction, right? Like, (laughs) you are terrible. And, uh, I don't know why he's the French judge. I just felt like he was more critical. So, but I think that's how so many people grow up with this image of a a very, uh, an overly critical, just deduction-making God. His heart is bleeding for intimacy and communion. His heart bleeds to be in a relationship with us that the least inadequate image, the least inadequate analogy that scripture has that God has for us, it's like that of marriage, he says. He stammers. God is stammering throughout all of scripture to say, I want to be like wedded to you. I want to be implicated in everything that is yours. I want to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. So all throughout the Old Testament, God is progressively trying to heal this wound of fear and mistrust and closed posture in the human heart by offering humanity covenants over and over and over again. The whole story of the Old Testament The whole story of salvation history is this passionate lover trying to rehabilitate relationship with humanity, trying to get us again into that posture of openness and trust. He's trying to get us to believe in the gift that he has for us. And that plan ultimately culminates in what scripture calls the fullness of time, when God sends an emissary, an angel, to bend the knee before the queen. Right? That's who Mary is. She's the queen. And in her womb, heaven and earth are stitched together. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, heaven and earth are wedded together. The church fathers, they called the Annunciation, they called Mary's womb the mystic bridal chamber. The mystical bridal chamber, where things of heaven are wed to those of earth. I'm going to stretch your imagination for a second, but just stay with me that, like, if you notice... The blue and the gold stars, right back here. It looks a lot like the robe that Our Lady of Guadalupe is wearing, right? When Mary appears the first time, the first Marian apparition, she is clothed with the stars. Blue is her color. 
And she's pregnant in that image. Because in her womb, heaven and earth are being joined together. It's almost as if we are right now in the mystical womb of Mary, again in the Annunciation, where right there at the altar, heaven and earth, as you say at camp, will smash together, right? But upon this altar where heaven and earth will be wedded together again. What does that look like? Bridegroom and bride being wedded together right here. The divine to the human. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to rescue his bride. I mean, his first miracle, he could have done anything. He could have turned a bunch of turtles into giraffes. He, like... I think that would have been funny. Okay, maybe not you, apparently. It's literally the first thing I thought of. He could have done anything, though. But he turned 180 gallons of ritual purification water, like foot water, into the choicest wine. He did the role of the bridegroom. The very first miracle the incarnate Son of God did was the role of the bridegroom. A wedding was where he first chose to reveal his divinity. John the Baptist, he calls himself the Shoshbim in Hebrew, calls himself the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who's out there in the desert baptizing all of Israel, preparing the bride to meet the bridegroom. When he's challenged by the Pharisees about his disciples picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, Jesus asks them, he says, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Like, maybe this isn't part of your, like, catechesis. This is not part of your formation, your understanding of who Jesus was growing up. But this is Catholicism. There is no other. Like, Jesus isn't merely interested in, like, a friendship with you. He's interested in something so much deeper. And that terrifies most of us because he says, I want to be in a relationship with you that that the best image I can give you is spousal. That's who he is. So all of this brings us to the strange gospel we just heard, right? Good Friday. So at the night of the Last Supper, night before Good Friday, Jesus takes bread. He's gathered with his friends. He takes bread. He takes wine. He says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. What he's doing, essentially, is he's speaking his vows to humanity. He's saying with his words what he intends to do with his flesh. He's speaking his vows. He hands himself over to humanity. This is my body given for you. In the exact same way that in just a moment, if I ever finish preaching, uh, you two will stand in front of this altar, in front of the Lord, in front of God, in front of this community, and with the vows that you have memorized and the vows that you're going to speak to each other, you will say in your, in like, Essentially what Jesus said at the night of the Last Supper, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. This is my life, my heart given to you. What you're essentially doing is you're placing your life into another person's hands. How is that not Eucharist? That's what the Lord did at the night of the Last Supper. He placed his heart, that's what the Eucharist is, the beating heart of the Son of God. He placed his heart into the hands and then into the bodies of his bride, the church. After today, those words of consecration will prayerfully, you'll never hear them the same. 
Because they'll be the words that have like marked your life and changed your life. They'll be the words that you have done. This is my body given for you. So the next day, as he goes to the cross, he goes not as some hapless victim, just like you two. You're not here as like hapless victims. If you are, we should probably talk real quick. Uh, But he goes to the cross, not as a hapless victim who gets ground beneath the wheel of Roman imperialism. He goes to the cross like as the all-powerful, all-tender lover who seems to be orchestrating all these events. Like, that's not something that, like, happened to him. Like, where do you get a nail so big that you can nail God to a cross? The only way he's on a cross is if he wanted to be there. And because he wanted to be there, he wanted to reveal his love to us. He goes to the cross freely to spend himself entirely, giving every drop of his precious blood so that his bride, like the new humanity, might be filled in every age with his divinity to impregnate her heart with fire. That's what he did on the cross. So it makes a lot of sense, if you ask me, for us to hear Jesus saying, it is finished. Today, as you guys say to each other, like, it is just beginning, right? Because what you're saying yes to is his self-gift. Because the madness of love's trajectory, it looks like that. Like, love always pushes us towards cruciformity. Always pushes us towards self-gift. It doesn't stop short. If we let it have its way with us, it says, I'm going to give you every drop. Because that's what I have to give. You're about to do what Jesus did. You're about to be the two thieves on either side of the Lord, like stealing your way into heaven. And there's only one ladder to do it, and it's the cross. It's the cross. And so if you two are ready to come to Golgotha, to lay down your lives for each other, through and with and in the Lord Jesus, I invite you now to come forward to give your lives away. Amen.